Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's roundtable, looking back on another coronavirus week. Among the big news of the week... On the coronavirus front, 1.6 million cases of COVID-19 now in the United States, and 95,000 people have now died from the disease. Donald Trump still refuses to wear a mask, in public at least, and gleefully announces he's taking hydroxychloroquine. On the economic front, all 50 states have started to reopen businesses, some gradually, some full bore and 38 million Americans are now out of a job. On the political front, Donald Trump threatens to publish any, punish rather, any state that expands the opportunity to vote by mail, and Joe Biden struggles to stay relevant from his basement in Wilmington, Delaware. On today's panel, to tackle it all, Pema Levy, political reporter for Mother Jones. Hello, Pema. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Igor Babish, politics reporter for HuffPost. Hello, Igor. Hello, Bill. And Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, now Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Hello, Chris. Good to have you with us, too. Hey, Bill. Hey, thank you all for joining us. So uh, President Trump yesterday went out to Michigan, visiting a Ford plant, now making ventilators. Uh, He refused again to wear a mask, even though he was asked to, uh, to wear a mask in public. And even though Michigan is such a hotspot for coronavirus, the president didn't talk much about COVID-19. He talked about vote by mail. Chris, what's going on? Well, look, it's 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 the height of hypocrisy. I mean, he's trying to point out uh, that the Michigan uh, secretary of state has sent out uh, absentee ballot applications. He actually got that wrong initially when he said they were sending out absentee ballots. But he's really targeting blue states right now, not only Michigan and Nevada. Meanwhile, there are red states all over the place that have vote by mail. And and he's doing this in an effort, obviously, to delegitimize uh, what he thinks will be, you know, bad election results or somehow suppress people from voting in the fall. Um, I think his threats are idle threats. I don't think he has the ability to withhold money, uh, but he certainly is trying to um, undercut the credibility of elections. Uh, And Pema, is that a a kind of a big let's talk about anything but the coronavirus kind of approach? You know, normally I would say yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's something that I I often see in the things that Trump uh, decides to engage on. But here I think that that this is really something that is worrying him. Um, I think he really sees that states that do have robust vote by mail, um, states like Washington and Colorado, have really high 
um, or relatively high levels of voter participation. Uh, and when there's high voter participation, that benefits Democrats. Uh, and he, you know, I'm not, I'm not really even surmising here. He's just gone ahead and said that himself. Uh, and so I think this worries him. You know, I think he, he is worried uh, that if states send everyone a ballot, um, then more people will vote and he won't win. And he said as much. And so I do think this is a preoccupation of his. Um, and the more he can sort of use the bully pulpit that he has to, one, scare voters and make voters think it's insecure, uh, and two, you know, scare states out of, you know, moving forward and making that available to everyone, um, the better he thinks his chances are. And I do want to point out one uh, headline I saw recently that really sort of shows the hypocrisy here <laughs> is that while Donald Trump is doing this, um, at the state level and on the campaign level, Republicans are urging their voters to get absentee ballots because they don't want their voters to have to decide whether or not to go to the polls and maybe get sick um, or not vote. So they want their voters to vote by mail, um, and they're making that request to them quietly. Uh, but this bigger message is much more targeted, I think, um, broadly, especially at blue states, to just not put in that infrastructure that would allow a large voter turnout. But Igor, the problem is that vote by mail is just packed with voter fraud all over the country, right? Isn't that the problem? <laughs> well, that's certainly what the president says. I mean, there's no evidence of, of widespread voter fraud. It's extremely rare. Um, but that's what he wants people to think so that when the time comes in November, people will have doubts of uh, what certain results show. And right now, at least, what his own campaign polling shows is him losing. So he's extremely worried about that. And, and to Chris's point, there's deep levels of hypocrisy here. I mean, the president himself has voted by mail. <laughs> he's voted by mail, uh, you know, uh, out of Florida. Um, and the White House has been trying to downplay that, um, kind of shift your attention away to things like fraud. And, and also, there are Republican states that vote by mail. Utah, for example, um, spoke to Mitt Romney, the senator of Utah this week, who said, you know, it works very, very well in a state, and it's a Republican state. It's a Republican-controlled state. So uh, the, the mind reels, as, as usual. Yeah. By the way, it's just a footnote on that. Uh, the president does vote by mail uh, in Florida. And uh, as we all recall, in 2018, led by President Trump, there were, uh, among Republicans, widespread claims of massive voter fraud in Florida, even though Rick Scott was elected senator and Ron DeSantis was elected governor. Uh, they've been doing an investigation since then for the last 17 months of the election in Florida and the Florida Elections Commission or whatever it is, uh, the Attorney General's office this week released their final report that showed zero evidence of any voter fraud in the 2018 election, um, including in all the mail-in ballots. Uh, so it sort of undercut um, the Republican Party, undercutting Donald Trump's own message. Uh, so let's look at where we are now with the coronavirus. 1.6 million cases in the United States reported. It's probably more than that. 95,000 Americans who have died from the disease. And states are, every one, every state is reopening to some extent. Uh, Pema, are we moving too soon? Uh, I think so. 
uh, I think it's funny. I don't, I don't know what, what role everyone here is going to play, but I can certainly play the, the pessimist this morning uh, if that role needs to be filled. Yeah, I think it's too soon. Um, you know, uh, 538 did an interesting story where they just, they just plotted, they took all the various models, I think, you know, half a dozen, you know, models at this point showing, um, you know, where um, infection rates and death rates might go um, here in the United States. And they all show cases are going to continue to go up. Um, you know, we're seeing states that have opened up more robustly, states like Arizona, their numbers are still going up. We just don't have the testing in place. We don't have the tracing in place um, to to really know what we're doing. Uh, we're, we're sort of flying blind here. And I have a lot of doubts that it's smart to be reopening. That doesn't mean, you know, maybe rural communities where there are no cases, you know, maybe letting up a little bit there makes sense, right? I'm not saying one size fits all, uh, but <laughs> I'm staying indoors <laughs> as much right. as I can. So, Chris, um, I find it striking. 95,000 Americans died of this disease, and yet people are just anxious to kind of get out there and, you know, get a haircut and get their nails done and go out to a restaurant. I mean, it... it have we just become uh, what insensitive to that massive number of people dying from this disease? Well, I will echo Pema, and I'm going to be a pessimist as well. I I don't know that people are hungering to get outside. I think there's a certain percentage of people, and I think it's also important to understand, you know, the racial aspects to this. I mean, this is far more uh, impacted lower income communities, African American communities, and yeah. so uh, to the extent that you see people out there protesting. Uh, it doesn't look like the people who are the most impacted by this. But I will say this. I mean, I think we are really kind of heading for the worst of all worlds where we have an economy that's sort of reopened, but people aren't really going out and doing anything. Uh, and while the number of cases continues to grow and grow. And so I think this is a challenge because people forget the, you know, the U.S. economy really runs on confidence. And if people don't feel comfortable going outside, workers don't want to go to the office, employers aren't feeling safe to reopen, the economy is, you know, in slow motion. And I think that's the problem where we have right now. And I think this idea that Trump thinks he could magically will the economy to recover just doesn't work. You know, the drivers of the U.S. economy are really large metropolitan areas uh, where a lot of these cases are concentrated. So you can open small pockets around the country. Uh, but make no mistake, that's not going to have a huge impact on the overall trajectory of the U.S. economy. Igor, would you be comfortable going out to a restaurant for dinner tonight? No, especially not indoors. I mean, I, I know some places are are beginning to open up outside areas and, and uh, situations like that. But I mean, for the moment, I, I think what polls are showing is that Republicans are getting more comfortable with going outside and going back to normal life than Democrats are. And I, I think a lot of that is because the president and Republicans are pushing to reopen. Um, and it's, 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 I, the evidence isn't in yet on whether it's effective or not, and whether we're going to, you know, all signs point to this virus coming back in the fall. And that's what concerns me most. You know, I keep coming back. You mentioned, Igor, that you were at the, uh, at the Capitol this week. I, I uh, living on Capitol Hill, uh, walk down the mall almost every day. That's how I can get outside and self-distance and get some exercise. And, and I can't help but notice 
Um, again, I keep coming back to this 95,000 figure, which is going to be 100,000 in a couple of days. And the flags are flying high and proud on all on the Capitol, all the public buildings. Um, it, it, why? Why? You know, why isn't there more concern about this massive amount of, you know, compare it to World War II or the Vietnam War or whatever? We far surpassed that. And yet people just seem to accept it. I think that you raise a really good point. And what comes to mind for me is Donald Trump's attention span. Um, you know, there was a time when he was talking about this as a war. And, you know, I think he still time, sometimes does. But, you know, we're fighting the invisible enemy. I'm a wartime president. And someone like that acknowledges the struggle, right? And they get that to work and they tackle the problem. And then, you know, the symbols of that struggle, like a lowered flag, sort of bring everyone together in it. And instead of being able to tackle that on the long term, instead, he's basically tried to rush forward and say, it's basically over, reopen, we've done great, mission accomplished, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, don't pay attention to the deaths, everything's fine. And, you know, I think like, but, like Chris said, he's trying to sort of wish this away. Um, you know, but as it, we all know, this is a public health crisis first and foremost, yeah. uh, and you can't wish it away. And so you have this, as you, you know, pointed out, this strange dichotomy of just enormous numbers of people dying, um, you know, a, a moral outrage and a country that's trying to pretend like it's not happening. Right. It may be the uh, lack of attention span on the part of the American people uh, as well. But Chris, I want to move to the other aspect of this. It is the most serious health, public health crisis uh, in our lifetime. It's also the most serious economic crisis. 38 million Americans now out of a job. The New York Times headline front page this morning. Uh, this week, another 2.4 million jobs vanish and many may be gone forever. As former Deputy Secretary of Labor, Chris, your comment? Yeah, I mean, and even that 38 million figure is probably understated because that doesn't include about 9 million gig workers who have filed for unemployment. So we're probably looking at around 30% of U.S. workers who are now out of work. The problem is um, many of these jobs will come back. But again, a lot of this just depends on confidence. I mean, you know, you can, it's hard to imagine people getting on airplanes in the same numbers that they were before or going on vacation or staying in hotels or going to restaurants. In uh, in the challenge, so those industries, I think, will be stagnating for an extended period of time. But then it's this, the mom and pop delis and dry cleaners that, you know, have really been closed or functionally closed mm -hmm. for the last two months. They may decide, you know what, there's no way to come back. And I think, it does. It, 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 we have put a lot of money out the door. We should continue putting money out the door. But it does beg the question as to whether there were better ways of having done this to try to keep both businesses afloat uh, and keep workers indoors to keep them safe during all of this. And in terms of money out the door, uh, Igor, on the Hill, um, there is, the Democrats have passed a, a fourth bill yet. Uh, what is the mood in the Senate, and particularly when it comes to extension of unemployment benefits, which are going to run out pretty soon? Yeah, that's right. There, um, the added six hundred dollar uh, boost to unemployment benefits that passed in March, due to expire in July, and Republicans are saying they're they're not interested in extending them, in, at least in that in that amount. Um, 
which is really critical for a lot of people. You know, a couple of my colleagues and I did a story this week about how um, Republicans are looking to uh, end that extension, even as many, many workers have yet to even receive any of their unemployment benefits, just because of, you know, kind of the antiquated systems of unemployment uh, distribution that we have around the country and, and, uh, and the states and how starved they have been of resources. You know, they couldn't really properly distribute unemployment benefits even before the pandemic. And now they've been hit by this massive, massive um, increase in claims, millions per week. Um, so they're having to deal with this in real time. And it's just been kind of a, a disaster. So um, up on the Hill, the, the the mood is really, at least among Republicans, that we've spent a lot of, lot of money, $3 trillion, and they're really looking to stop stop doing that. Um, but they're they're facing public pressure now and thinking about maybe doing something when they return from recess, possibly in June, probably in July. And what is the what what is the you know so much of the original money went to big corporations, big companies, right? I mean the big airlines. The, uh, we we we've seen um, some of the manufacturers getting that money. What's the reluctance to share to to help the people who are really at the bottom of the ladder? How do they justify it? The reluctant. Well, they say that much of the money has yet to go out, really, especially um, on the corporate side. Um, They are not interested in doing another round of stimulus checks, which is really the one piece of uh, congressional action that has worked the best. Um, It's gone out much quicker than people thought, and and, uh, Democrats want to give out another round of checks to to struggling uh, Americans. Uh, but that's one of the the most points of contentions right now, at least between Democrats and Republicans, is that um, Republicans really say the deficit is too high and that we do not want to make it even higher. Right. So, uh, Pema, the president surprised everybody uh, at the White House this week, seems to surprise a lot of his staff by announcing that he's got the answer to um, the coronavirus, which is taking hydroxychloroquine which he had, I was at a briefing one time where he called it the miracle drug. Um, and he says the White House doctor said, fine, go ahead and take it. It's your personal choice. What kind of message does this send? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this question, Bill, <laughs> because I've been thinking about this. Are you taking it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, definitely not. Um, look, <laughs> the message is bad, but let me just start by saying, Count me skeptical <laughs> that oh. he's actually taking it. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, if you have someone who you know is often telling you lies, and then one day they show up and say, I'm taking a pill that many people say could kill me, why would I trust them on that? <laughs> so, and then you read the doctor's note, which, you know, it sounds to me like a doctor that's been asked to back up a, a false claim. And so sort of write something wishy-washy like, well, I've reviewed the evidence and it's not so bad, right? Like if if he had really prescribed it to Trump or said, you know, who knew that Trump was taking it, you know, it, it looks like someone to me who's trying to, you know, answer a question without really saying anything. So I am pretty skeptical that he is taking it. Yeah. But I, I think that that, that really, oh, let me just say, I mean, that, I think that that says a lot about the message to the second part of your question, Right. I mean, either the president is doing something dangerous to prove a point and encourage other people to do something dangerous, or 
he's lying to people about the fact that he is doing something dangerous in order to simply, you know, continue this obsession that he's had and to continue to make his point and continue to sort of say, oh, we're on the precipice of curing this because I've, you know, for the whole time I've known that this is like the cure and everything. And he's endangering lives that way. So either way, it's bad. And the message is potentially very harmful. And obviously there are stories about people who really do need to take this drug and now they're facing shortages. Um, So this is the kind of thing where the president can cause real harm, you know, whether or not he's actually taking it or not. Right. And Chris, I I guess maybe we could say, well, at least he's no longer suggesting that you ingest Clorox or bleach. (laughs) Yeah, when that when that's uh, the the only good angle we can find out of that, that's telling. Uh, Let me I will side with Pem on this one as well. Count me skeptical. I went and read the doctor's note. It's not clear that he that that he's taking anything. But what I find found equally troubling out of this was um, the how he dealt with the blowback after the fact, uh, when people put studies in front of him, he said, look, he, he said it was a bad study and mm-hmm. it was a Trump enemy statement. Let's just refresh. I mean, this was a study conducted in connection with the Dep- Department of Veterans Affairs. So a federal agency uh, uh, authorized a study, and it was a study of 368 veterans uh, and so, again, you know, I, I'm not a scientist. I actually did read the study to see what they found. Um, and it did find, a, you know, no no uh, health impact, but also from a positive standpoint, uh, but some potentially bad side effects. And so, uh, yeah, whether it's I think Pema said it right. I mean, either he's lying or he's not lying, but either outcome is not a particularly good one. Igor, uh, I want to touch on a, uh, just a slightly different subject before we take a break. And that is. Uh, the issue of inspectors general. Donald Trump has fired four of them in the last six weeks from the Department of Homelands, uh, I mean, Health and Human Services, the Pentagon, the intelligence agencies, and of course, most famously, perhaps, the inspector general for the uh, Department of State. Um, what do Republicans you find on the Hill think about this um, sort of a massive firing? And it's re- re- rumored or reported that he intends to fire a few more. Well, surprisingly, Bill, Republicans are completely fine with um, the president. But asking. I thought they always supported inspectors general. <laughs> well, they did during uh, the previous administration. I mean, look, the the law says that the president can fire inspectors general, who are really the watchdogs uh, uh, that were set up, you know, after the the Watergate era to keep an eye on shady business going on in the government. Um, but what the president has done has fired a series of these watchdogs in a matter of weeks, um, you know, suggesting that there's really something else going on here besides regular turnover, something that you would see, you know, uh, an administration putting in somebody new after coming into office like President Obama did in 2009. So, um, and, you know, you've in the meantime, you've had a bunch of investigations into these agencies like the State Department, um, that these watchdogs were working on. So now there is uh, kind of a, a smell or a, a smoke that that uh, th- this was done out of political retaliation, and the president has not offered a sufficient enough explanation for why he's doing it. So you've had some Republicans speak up, but not really that loudly. Right. 
Okay, so on the subject of politics, we've got three political reporters. Let's get to the politics of 2020, which we will do right after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's roundtable with Pema Levy and Igor Babish and Chris Liu brought to you by the Smart Union. Yes, indeed, a few years ago, they all joined together, the sheet metal workers, air workers, rail and transportation, forming the Smart Union, over 700 locals around the country. Under the leadership of President Joseph Sellers, they keep America rolling, uh, keep America moving in the air, on the on the, on the rails and uh, through buses and other mass transit systems check out their website at smart-union.org man that sunset is gorgeous grill patio sunset hard to get better than that unless you're browsing carvana's inventory while you soak it all in oh burger time so sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's roundtable, Pamela Levy from Mother Jones, Igor Babish from HuffPost, and Chris Liu from the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Uh, Chris, where is Joe Biden? Well, he's in Wilmington, Delaware, and he is uh, doing several fundraisers a day and stocking up his coffers and uh, doing uh, vetting uh, a vice presidential nominee as well as uh doing lots of press do you think he should be more visible more out there than he is you know given where he is in the polls right now no i think this is actually quite a brilliant strategy i mean he is uh i mean look a a lot of things i just described had to be done i mean he got out of a primary campaign with relatively little money with relatively little staff they have a new campaign manager jen o'malley dylan on board uh she's been hiring 
Uh, and, you know, based on the April fundraising, uh, the Biden campaign and the DNC effectively matched uh, the Trump campaign and the RNC, and I suspect they'll probably exceed them this month. So that was all needed. Uh, but if you look at, you know, the strategy is essentially to make this a referendum on Donald Trump. And every day Donald Trump is out there talking about taking untested drugs and 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 Joe Biden is, uh, you know, seeming like the, the, the wise man who is the rational leader uh, is a good day for Joe Biden. Igor, I found uh, one of the most interesting stories this week uh, was um, uh, several of them about the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are actually working pretty closely with Joe Biden, which has pissed off a lot of their supporters because <laughs> they don't want to cozy up to Joe Biden and they don't like what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were doing. So where's the progressive community in all of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what both Warren and, Ber and Bernie have shown is that they're more pr pragmatic than uh, perhaps uh, their supporters believed on the campaign trail. And that's just a <laughs> right. matter of politics. I mean, that's how they've survived so long, how they've thrived. Um, but I, I think what the Biden campaign is doing is trying to bring in their supporters by embracing or at least nodding towards um, some of their policy platforms. And, um, you know, it remains to be seen whether how many progressives he's going to pick up. Uh, I mean, I think that's that's the play right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Pema, there's also been talk that, you know, Joe Biden himself described himself as uh, a transition leader, right, that he would be a transition president, uh, which is sort of a nod to his age, I guess. Uh, but now people are talking about, no, this is not a time for a transition president. This is a time, these times demand somebody a lot bolder, an agenda a lot bolder, uh, a sort of an FDR 100 days kind of approach to the presidency. Uh, is that where they're going? What do you, what do you, what do you read? Yeah, I think that that might be where they're going. Uh, <laughs> I think and should of, be going, maybe. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think of Joe Biden and someone who is less ideological, right? And he's more about working with people, and he usually finds a happy center. Um, but I think that that means that he's flexible with the times. And the times that he ran a primary in are not the times that he's running a general election in. And so, you know, I think he's someone who will sort of feel his way toward that moment. Um, and you see it in the reports about the fact that he talks about FDR. He talks about the New Deal. He talks about, you know, the unprecedented scale um, of this financial disaster and obviously this health crisis. Um, and I think, you know, from a political perspective, I agree with Chris. I think that, you know, Biden is not in any sort of crisis in terms of visibility. Um, but I ultimately think that as this campaign heats up, um, he will be served well by showing contrast. Um, and part of that contrast is to say, here's my plan. And if his plan is not very much, well, that's the status quo, mm -hmm. right? And so on some level, uh, Donald Trump has, has decided to occupy the uh, let's not do a lot. <laughs> Let, let's maintain the course, um, you know, when it comes to the economy and when it comes to dealing with the coronavirus. Um, and so on some level, I think Donald Trump is going to be pushing Biden into a place of saying, if you want something different, elect me. And that has to be bolder. Yeah. Um, that has to be bigger. And so I think that there are a lot of those forces. 
Um, you know, and certainly, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are smart politicians and, you know, they see an opening. And I think that there are also politicians who, you know, certainly there is ego involved if you run for president. Um, but they also really care about the, their ideas and their policies. Um, and if they can take a win that way, uh, I think I think they will. And so to the extent that Biden sort of welcomes those viewpoints and um, and that kind of pressure, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for flexibility. Do I think he'll be the most liberal president ever and, you know, basically be Bernie Sanders? No, I don't. Uh, but I do think that there's um, room for him to move and that that process, I don't expect it to happen overnight, but I expect it to continue. Uh, and Chris, back to the jobs numbers we talked about earlier. I mean, these are the times that really demand pretty bold action on the economic front, right? Yeah, you know, I think this pandemic has really exposed so many of the um, racial and social um, inequities in our society. And I think, you know, Biden understands, as, as Pema just said, he's not, you know, this is no longer a primary campaign in which, you know, we had three and a half percent unemployment. We are, you know, facing something that has now eclipsed the Great Recession. And, you know, let's not forget, you know, Biden was in charge of the uh, the Recovery Act in 2009, 2010. Um, he understands and he sees um, the potential of government uh, not only to, to help drive this recovery, but also to help deal with some of these inequities. And so I think this move to, um, you know, they have these you know, policy unification committees that he's doing with the Sanders campaign. I think it's not just smart policy. I think it's smart politics as well. I mean, if you look at where the polls are right now, you know, Biden is actually eclipsing uh, by far where Hillary Clinton was in terms of independence uh, and people, voters over 65. Where he's lagging a little bit right now is among progressives and among young people. And by adopting some of these proposals from the left, I think he can actually help cure that. Uh, and let's not forget that uh, Joe Biden uh, scored this. I mean, Joe Biden yeah, scored this week, I think, by coming up with his own nickname for President Trump, President Tweedy. <laughs> which I, I personally like. Okay, before we break and go to your favorite stories, um, uh, Chris, you mentioned one of the important things happening in the basement of Wilmington, Delaware, uh, is the beginning of the vetting for the vice presidential nominee. Let's go around the table. Who do you think is the uh, front runner or likely to emerge? You can be right, you can be wrong. Just to, what do you think right at the moment? Igor, who's on top? Um, I'd have to say my money's on Kamala. Uh because of just the obvious reasons, but also you're hearing a lot more about all the other candidates in the press, and it usually tends to be the the less reported, quieter candidate <laughs> who ends up getting it. Yeah, history shows us that, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Uh, Lyndon Johnson may be being the best example. Uh, what do you think, Pema? Oh, let's see. I'm just going to sort of name someone here. Um, I'm going to go with Elizabeth Warren for the reasons that we said we talked about. Um, I think there's been, you know, buzz yesterday around Amy Klobuchar. I think there's sort of a constant low level buzz around Kamala Harris. Um, but I guess I would say that if the campaign keeps looking at its numbers and its numbers continue to show that the place where the excitement is lower is that progressive side of the party, mm -hmm. um, then I think she's basically becomes the only choice. Uh, and so 
I, I think that that is a, a possibility. All right, Chris, the real political insider here. <laughs> What's the word? <laughs> uh, I'm going with Igor on this one. I'm going to go Kamala Harris. I think uh, the backbone of the Democratic Party is African-American women. Uh, and I think that's an area where, again, it, it, Biden has a couple of demographics he has to shore up. And I think African-Americans is one of those areas. Uh, Harris is unquestionably qualified to be president. Uh, and I think she could do a lot to excite uh, people around the country. Okay, I'll just throw in my word. Um, I, th- I, I think all of those are good. I think Amy Klobuchar still is a hot shot. I would keep my eye on Susan Rice. Uh, I just want to put that out there. Um, uh, given her experience uh, and giving, given the fact that the Biden may be looking for somebody who could step up into the role of president, I think she'll be uh, a strong contender. Uh, at any rate. Okay. At that moment, we always ask you um, that what caught your attention this week in terms of, we call it your favorite story of the week, could be serious or not, could be coronavirus related or not. Um, Pema, what stopped you to say, hey, look at this? Well, I honestly really tried to find something funny. (laughs) I'm just going to preface this by saying I really tried. And as someone who puts content out into the world, I'm going to have to do better because it was hard. So I'm going to have to go serious here. Um, Look, I think the thing that that really caught me um, was the news that Beijing is essentially ending, you know, um, their policy toward Hong Kong, that they're going to, you know, that this is sort of the end of Hong Kong as we as we knew it, and and you know their their freedoms that they have enjoyed there, and um, you know I have a friend who lives there and actually is quarantining there at the moment, um, and uh, was a, a a kind of fearless photographer of the protests last year, and I think that you know this is a moment where China feels free to to really crack down, and you know the kinds of protests that you did just a few months ago you can't do anymore. Um, and so I was, I was just really struck by that and, and, you know, kind of saddened, um, um, by how that has gone down. It is a sad moment. And, uh, the reality is it looks like the president Xi is going to be able to get away with it and, uh, no, nobody, uh, could, could stop him. Uh, Chris, your favorite story of the week. Uh, well, I'm going to go serious too, and it's not a favorite story, but I think it's one that needs to be highlighted. Uh, Tracy Jan in the Washington Post had a story two days ago about, um, the race, the racist harassment and attacks against Asian American oh, doctors yeah. and nurses. And this is just such a horribly tragic story. Uh, you know, um, Asian Americans make up 18% of doctors in this country, 10% of nurses, and it, they are on the front lines of dealing with this pandemic. And yet they're facing this incredible abuse from people who are there trying to help mm-hmm. uh, in hospitals or when they're leaving hospitals, they're harassed on subways. Um, there's a, a database that's been created over the last couple of months to track uh, all kinds of uh, racial attacks against Asian Americans broadly. Uh, they've tallied about 1,800 related to COVID-19. And again, I think it highlights, you know, words matter. And when the president says something and when he scapegoats and race baits, uh, it gives license to a lot of people around the country to do the same thing. And he did that in the Rose Garden with um uh, the reporter from CBS, right, saying uh, exactly, yeah, so. yeah. Why don't you ask China about that, right? Yeah, yeah totally racist remark. Uh, Igor, I'm. <laughs> are you in the serious vein again, or like the others today? What's your favorite well, story? <laughs> I, I was gonna go serious, but uh, I think 
there's we all need a moment of levity. So um, yes, I am gonna highlight a president's tweet yesterday, which <laughs> he fired off at Fox News, uh, calling them garbage and saying that they used to be great and um, saying they were basically just admitting flat out saying that they're doing nothing to help Republicans, including himself, to get reelected, which. <laughs> just seems stunning to me and where it feels like we're already uh you know moved on but it's incredible and i just would have loved to have been there in the in the fox newsroom when this happened yeah you wonder what more fox could do right than they do already for donald trump but that was a that was a stunning tweet uh, and i must admit uh, i'm a little ashamed by my favorite story of the week because i do believe uh with uh, michelle obama that when they go low we go high uh, and I generally don't uh, approve of getting in the gutter with Donald Trump or uh, some of his uh, supporters. But I must say, I relished this week when uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, talked about the fact that uh, she didn't like to see Donald Trump taking hydroxychloroquine, particularly because of his age and because of his weight, which she said <laughs> described as morbidly obese. <laughs> Uh, I again, I'm a little ashamed to admit how much I enjoyed that. Um, but I also enjoyed the fact that for Donald Trump, this is one way she has of getting under his skin <laughs> and giving him what she called a dose of his own medicine. And he had to reply by calling uh, Speaker Pelosi a sick woman, a woman with a lot of mental problems. <laughs> so I think she got to him, don't you? A little bit, right? Exactly. Pema Levy, Mother Jones. Thanks so much, Pema, for joining us today. Igor Babish from um, HuffPost. Igor, always good to have you with us. And Chris Liu, great job from uh, University of Virginia's Miller Center. Uh, thank you all three. And if you hold there for just a moment, I'll close with my parting shot for today. I always hasten to remind people these are my comments alone and not necessarily the comments of the panel. But, you know, it is one of the great and only remaining bipartisan traditions left in Washington. And I'm talking about the unveiling of the presidential portrait at the White House. In 1989, George H.W. Bush welcomed Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan back to the White House for the unveiling of their official portraits. In 1995, George and Barbara Bush were back as guests of Bill and Hillary Clinton. George W. Bush hosted the Clintons in 2004, and Barack and Michelle Obama welcomed George and Laura Bush back to the East Room in 2012. But don't expect to see Barack and Michelle in the East Room anytime soon. Donald Trump has decided not to invite them. The White House confirmed an NBC report this week that no Obama portrait will be welcomed at the White House in Donald Trump's first term as president, or God forbid, not even in his second. Why? Well, the White House didn't say, but there's only one reason. It's not because Donald Trump is so busy. It's because he is an outright racist. For five years, he led the birther movement to deny the legitimacy of our first African-American president. Having failed at that, he now refuses to grant our first African-American president the honor afforded to every other modern president since FDR, the honor of having his official portrait and that of his wife, the First Lady, hanging in the White House. But you know, don't feel sorry for Barack and Michelle Obama. 
If Donald Trump did invite them after he's accused Obama with zero evidence of committing the worst crime in American history, I'm not sure the Obamas would even show up. And that's it for today's uh, roundtable, today's uh, Bill Press Pod. Thanks to our panelists, again, uh, Chris Liu and Igor Babish and Donna Levy. Thanks to all of you for listening. And before you run away, we ask you one more time, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod so you are one of our regulars wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. Then tell all your friends to do the same. Meanwhile, thank you again for joining us. Stay strong, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.